KBTC, a viewer-supported community service of Bates Technical College. From KBTC Public Television Studios in Tacoma, Washington, it's the Northwest Now podcast. Each week, we take a closer look at the people and issues that affect all of us here in Western Washington. So sit back, relax, and join the conversation with your host, Tom Lason. We could see this coming back in 1983 in the movie War Games. Or how about in the Terminator series, where Skynet becomes self-aware, activating killer robots. But then, a decade later in real life, the great chess players went down. Then Watson won Jeopardy. And now the rest may already be history. AI has taken off, embedded in the software and tools we use every day with the promise of even more just over the horizon, if we make it there. So part of the discussion tonight with two experts from the UW, will AI give us 10-hour work weeks and increase human productivity as a partner, or will it enslave mankind and possibly be the beginning of our collective end? And our Steve Kickens with the story of AI and its role in academia. Is it a tool that will enhance human learning or a crutch that will make true learning a thing of the past? That's the discussion tonight on Northwest Now. My generation grew up with an appreciation of futurist and author Isaac Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics. A robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. A robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. A robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. But what if the robot can think for itself? It's not just programmed, it's goal-seeking and possibly most concerned about its own survival. That's the worry about AI, software that evolves and possibly even gains something mimicking true understanding, emotions and feelings. What if a robot or even just a computer gets mad, taking its programming to an extreme where the unintended consequences result in extermination? It sounds far-fetched, but some of the best minds in this field are deeply worried about just that kind of thing. For now, though, our concerns are about things like ChatGPT, a software that can write and compose. And as Steve Kiggins tells us, fool teachers every now and then. Why this particular author was most suited to writing this text. So we're like, oh no, AI is going to be taking away all of our writing instruction and everything like that. This is a scored discussion. Gig Harbor High School English teacher Jessica Gillard prep students for a writing assignment that just a couple years ago didn't exist. And a lot of kids were like, well, we shouldn't let the robots take over. The research, study, writing, and editing required for today's homework encourages students to embrace the use of artificial intelligence. Sometimes I think the technology goes like really fast and then we have to kind of say, okay, we have to have some boundaries here. While much larger school districts in places like New York State and Seattle have pumped the brakes, in other places like the Peninsula School District and Gig Harbor, has instead chosen a measured yet thoughtful approach. My seniors, especially graduating from high school now, those entry-level data entry types of positions aren't going to exist anymore, so they're going to have to learn how to work with the AI in order to be able to function in society. We're kind of on the front line of it, but we're trying to see what we can do. Executive Director of Digital Learning Chris Hagel says the district worked alongside instructors to develop uh, lesson plans in late yeah, 2022 and early 2023 that guide students across age groups how to use AI, like ChatGPT, to enhance instruction and help kids identify where the technology can fall short. You know, trying to stay on top of this is going to be impossible, but, you know, teaching kids to 
be critical thinkers and to be problem solvers and to utilize the tools that are available to them is this kind of skills that we need. It's almost impossible to predict where we're going to be in five years with this technology. And if you know anything about school districts, that you know that they move very slowly and that transformation is difficult. Christian Pinedo from the San Francisco-based nonprofit AIEDU is working with educators in school districts across America to navigate AI while advocating for digital literacy and equitable access to emerging technologies. Yet the potential AI has to transform society is enormous and partly because of its universal fit for a lot of different things. It is not something that gets pigeonholed into one field and is going to affect just that one field. It's going to universally transform tons of things. Um, and that's because AI itself is a very amorphic concept and its applications are something that we're starting to see more and more of. Okay, so you guys have While some worry students may use AI to generate entire assignments, essentially cheating themselves into a passing grade. Instead, the Peninsula School District believes kids and teachers can use AI as a tool but not as a substitute for intelligence. That's what their jobs are gonna be, right? So when we look to my seniors, especially graduating from high school now, those entry-level data entry types of positions aren't gonna exist anymore, so they're gonna have to learn how to work with the AI in order to be able to function in society. In Gig Harbor, Steve Kickens, Northwest Now. Joining us now is Ryan Callow, a law professor at the University of Washington who specializes in robotics and artificial intelligence. Ryan, thanks so much for coming to Northwest Now for a discussion I've been meaning to have for a long time about artificial intelligence. And every week, it seems like the buzz on it is growing and growing and growing. I think my threshold question to you is this. Is what we're hearing now reality or is it a lot of hype to get investors involved? And is it Wall Street and every company and every earnings call saying nothing but AI? How do we, which is the reality? I heard this IBM uh, executive say about artificial intelligence that it's a 50-year overnight sensation, <laughs> right? Meaning just that um, the, uh, the techniques that are being used today that are generating this amazing um, uh, uh, art and, and speech and text um, really have been uh, in the works for, for decades. Um, I think what's different now is a confluence of a bunch of factors, including um, a lot of computational power that just wasn't available in the mm -hmm. 50s and 60s, a tremendous amount of data, typically uh, generated on the internet, um, and, uh, and just uh, the uh, clever techniques that are using the computer's ability to predict in order to generate human-level content in a bunch of different domains, on and that's 60, pretty exciting. On 60 Minutes this Sunday, there was an expert who said it's not just predicting, it's actually thinking through and reasoning. Do you think we're there yet? You know, th that was Hinton, I believe, one of the uh -huh. sort of progenitors of reinforcement learning. I hear different things from the community, right? Um, uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, it sure looks that way. So if you look at GPT-4, um, not only can this chat system uh, give you an answer, it can give you the reasoning behind its answer, uh -huh. uh, which is very interesting and exciting. And so it can do things like um, tell you how you could stack a bunch of random items so that they would stay up in a tower, right? Yeah. And then give you the why. So some people believe that there's kind of reasoning behind that. Other more cynical voices um, might say, you know, gosh, uh, what's really going on here is that it's, it's just so good at predicting the next word 
right? That if you ask it to, to a question, it can answer it. And one of the major differences between previous versions of ChatGPT, for example, and the current version is that a lot of people interacted with ChatGPT3, including people that were hired by companies in order to answer questions. And anytime the system got something wrong, somebody would correct it, a human would correct it. So of course, it got better and better and better. Sure. But a lot of that had to do with the interaction between the system and real people that were correcting it over and over and over again. So Also learning how to use it. Yeah. And that's the point. I think one of the interesting things you make is how there's different theories about how it actually works. We really don't know what is going on precisely in that black box, right? Yeah, it's hard to say, right? So when I describe this work, um, I, you know, I, I talk in terms of, of, of uh, it's predicting. Uh, and what it's predicting is the next word or the next pixel or the next sound. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the uh, concerns I have about the technology, frankly, is that it's optimized for plausibility, not for accuracy. Right, because Alexa's already given out wrong answers about the 2020 election. Absolutely. She's, yeah. she's full of you know what. And, and when you think <laughs> about the quality of the information on the Internet, it's like, wow, aren't we really kind of creating an antisocial psychopath by letting AI learn from, I think, a pretty darn toxic environment like the Internet? That's maybe one of the risks, too. Yeah, there's a number of risks. I mean, I remember years ago when Microsoft, right here in the Pacific Northwest, um, actually released a, a chatbot called Tay. Um, and just the company did not anticipate the vitriol that Tay yeah. would encounter yeah. on, on Twitter. And, yeah. and within a few hours, um, Tay had been sort of retrained to, to say things that were very, very problematic, racist, sexist, and so on. Uh, and the company ended up having to pull the chat. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of toxicity out there, yeah. and and you know to the extent that these systems are trained on us, uh, we're not we're very imperfect. So you've been working on committees and in journals like Without My Consent, We Robot policy conferences for a long time. When I look back in your resume, you were into this in the early 2000s. I mean, it's been coming. You know, I read Isaac Asimov as a kid. I refer to that <laughs> in Elite. So we've all been thinking about this. So my question for you is, do you think that we are ahead of the curve with the curve right now, or are we already desperately behind the curve on this? Oh, I think we're, I think we're either, you know, at the, at the bleeding edge or, or in front, right? I mean, so I would tell you that, you know, right here um, about 40 minutes from where I'm sitting, uh, we hosted the inaugural Obama White House uh, AI policy workshop um, right at UW. Um, and, uh, and they came to us in part because the region is so strong technically. Um, and you have players like your Microsofts, but also the Allen Institute uh, for AI. So I think here we are in this region, we're really at the cutting edge. And I think the United States as a, as a whole is again also really at the, at the bleeding edge of this stuff. Yeah, That's where you've testified in front of the Senate though. Do you think they get it? Do lawmakers and policymakers really get this? I know the people in the labs might be at the cutting yeah. edge. I'm talking about the rest of us from you know, a regulatory and control perspective. I think it really varies. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm, 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 I'm often quite concerned um, uh, when, uh, when I interact with uh, policymakers about what are some of the gaps. And not because these, these are not stupid people. They're very smart. Say we all um, are. Uh, yeah, but the truth of the matter is, is that if, if there isn't enough expertise about these systems in government, then they need to rely on the word of industry, uh -huh. right? And, um, and, they can, and they make mistakes. So I will tell you, though, it does vary. I mean, our senator, Maria Cantwell, 
very, very wise on this stuff, very are the, well versed. Are the companies too much in control on this? Do we need some citizen oversight? Is, is it too corporate? Are we going to see social media again um, and all its negatives, in my humble opinion, that it's caused? Or do you think we'll be better this time because we know it can potentially happen? We don't want Skynet. I think that industry and academics and others are, are calling artificial intelligence the next transformative technology of our time. They are analogizing it to things like electricity or trains, right? And my view is that if artificial intelligence is going to change everything, then one of the things that needs to change is law and legal institutions. And that's not up to the companies. Right. Right. Um, nor to the academics. It's up to policymakers whom we elect. And I think that government needs to be very active in this space. Who is liable for this stuff? If somebody if it, if if is that framework built yet, the legal framework? I know you're a lawyer, too. Yeah. Everything else that you are. But I mean, who is responsible if, if, a, if a robot turns around, kills me or a self-driving car runs over? They, they can't do what social media did, which is say, hey, we're just a platform. Don't look at us. Don't look at us for destroying democracy in our society. We're just a platform. Yeah. I don't think that's going to work this time. Well, we'll see, right? I mean, the idea is that uh, they build these systems that are based on foundational models and then people build things on top, you know, um, applications on top of there. Uh, and they, the companies probably would argue, look, we're just giving you a set of tools and what you do with them so is will, up to you, right? They will argue the same yeah, thing. Maybe so, but, <laughs> and we'll, but we'll see how far it goes, right? I mean, I think certainly with a product uh, like a driverless car that hurts somebody, the manufacturer's gonna be liable. Um, I'll tell you, as a law professor, what I've noticed is that the law is much more aggressive when bones instead of bits are on the line, uh, good right? One. So yeah. if people get physically hurt, yeah. um, I'm very, um, I'm sure that the, that the law will, will locate responsibility in part in the people that are making these systems. I think the concern is what happens if these systems violate our privacy, make us feel bad, encourage us to do harmful things as some of these systems uh -huh. have done. You know, that's the place I think reliability is unsettled. Last 60 seconds here, um, you talked about the merging of the physical and the, and the virtual. Um, that is obviously implanting robots with AI. A lot of people are struggling for end use cases. I suggest that it's gonna be companionship. Mm. Um, and I really think the chances of a major societal change there are enormous when you have attractive AI-driven robots um, able to provide companionship to people. And I'm speaking generically, euphemistically, or, or when it comes to companionship. Sure. Do you see that as a threat, like, um, uh, and, a, and a solid use case that will really drive this thing, at least early on? Well, I see it as, a, as an opportunity, but also really as a concern. You know, one of the things I've written about recently with uh, an MIT roboticist um, is about Replica. And Replica is this um, company that creates an avatar that will chat with you and has different modes. And initially, it actually had a mode where it would flirt with you and even engage in erotic chat with oh, you. Oh, yeah. heck yeah. Um, and, so, and so one of the things that happened was that when uh, Italian uh, data authority complained to Replica, they responded by shutting off all of a sudden the romantic part of the chatbots. And people got really upset because they had developed these intimate connections with these oh, yeah. machines. And ultimately, Replica had to reverse itself and restore that functionality for their users because people were really upset. So, you know, I think that we cannot underestimate the extent to which people will understand anthropomorphic machines as though they were really social and human. And so, yes, that creates the opportunity for social interactions, including companionship. 
but it also creates dangers as people uh, come to be uh, so much closer with what ultimately are in our machines. Ryan Callow, thanks so much for coming to Northwest Now. My delight. Joining us now is Shariq Shah, a professor and co-director of the Center for Responsibility in AI Systems at the University of Washington. Shrag, thanks so much for coming to Northwest Now. This conversation I've been wanting to have a long time about AI and um, the advance, the, the advent of this artificial intelligence phenomena that we're all experiencing right now. I think one of the most interesting things that I wanted to bring up with you right away is that you're a little bit of a contrarian. Where I live, at, you know, dreaming at night of Terminator coming and killing the human race, <laughs> you're a little less concerned. Why so? Yeah, I'm not too concerned about Terminators taking over uh, at this point. Um, I think there is some truth to to be concerned, to, uh, why we should be concerned about some of those um, uh, realities working out. Um, but if you look at the Terminator, uh, there are elements there that should be concerning to us. And these are some of the elements that some other, uh, people like Nick Bostrom and others, you know, philosophers have warned us about AI. Um, that is the issue of control. And what happens in the Terminator, while I'm not concerned about those kind of robots coming over um, and destroying the humanity, I am concerned about us losing control. So as we start to give more control to these entities that we uh, believe can take um, intelligent, can make intelligent decisions, um, we slowly lose our agency. Um, and then philosophers and others have shown through thought experiments that it's not too long before they realize that uh, to save the humanity, they have to kill the humans or they have to take the humans right. out of the equation. To achieve their goals. To, so yeah, so that, that trajectory is quite possible. Because if, if you tell AI, hey, solve climate cri the climate crisis, which sounds like a great goal. Yeah. Great, let's take all the CO2 out of here. Well, the first step may dang well be to wipe out the cities and cars and everybody in them. And I think that's the Terminator scenario. So I'm. Um, when I say I'm not concerned about the Terminators, I don't believe that we are there where a simple switch can be flipped and suddenly Skynet takes over. And, <laughs> and we, I, I think this, this is going to happen gradually. So yes, there is still a danger of something like this happening, but I think this happens gradually. So Bostrom, for instance, has this thought experiment about um, an AI that makes paper clips. Right. So forget about solving climate crisis, simple, very, innocent thing of making paper clips, but then he shows that ultimately this AI goes on to destroy the universe because it is really trying to yeah. make as many paper clips as possible. It needs all the resources, it needs everybody out of its way, and it's off to the races to achieve its narrow goal. That's right. Yeah. Um, okay, now here's the cynical part of me. We're in a major AI hype cycle. Alexa, tells us that the election was a fraud in 2020, can't get it right. The stuff that I read coming out of chat GPT is garbage. It's just, you can, it's, it's like a kid trying to, when you say 500 words, it's the kid trying to write 500 words. It's, there's the quality of information you get from scraping the web is certainly questionable. Um, so is this an investment hype cycle um, or is, is it real? And if it is real, what is the real end use? What is the end market for this, do you think? I think that's a great question, and this is what I believe we should be spending more time um, to think about, because there are benefits and there are harms. Um, but what I see is people not spending enough time about what are the, the right kind of benefits and what are the right kind of harms. So 
The Terminator thing that you mentioned, I think that's the wrong kind of harm that we should be worried about. There are other kinds of harm that are real, that are happening now, so we should be you know, working on that. In terms of the benefits, um, so one of the things that you know, I work in information access or I care about information access, one of the things that people like me have uh, complained about for years or decades is the search engine model is pretty old. It's, it's not very humane. It's not, it's not how humans interact. We don't throw a bunch of keywords at each other. It's biased and it's controlled by the corporations too, so you have that. <laughs> well, that too. Um, but, but, you know, we need to change that modality. So we have to be able to interact in natural language, right? Being able to ask questions, get answers. So that's one benefit, that's happening. So that's, that's kind of a really good use of it. Unfortunately, that could also make things worse because now you're interacting, as you gave an example of Alexa, but ChatGPT, take all of these examples. You're interacting with them in national language. What it does to you as a user, it builds this trust uh -huh. because now you have an entity that's talking back to you, that, that's first up is able to understand your national language. It's talking back to you in national language, the language that you understand. The only other entities that we've ever had that in our history are other humans. Right. And so all of that trust that's, that's built with this language over thousands of years now immediately gets transferred to this interaction. So it's an, arms, it's an arms race between trying to convince us that it's helpful on our side, useful and real, and insisting on some transparency that says, listen, this wasn't a person, this was AI. And I can see that being a new arms race to some degree between, even for non-malevolent uses, between people trying to persuade you, trust me as I take your credit card number, <laughs> and hey, this image was generated by AI, just so you know. Absolutely, so I think this national language interaction makes it really hard for people to differentiate between this, the fact that they're still talking to a machine that has all these flaws um, and it's not an expert, right? Because our, our intuition is if somebody is able to talk to us and understand us and even sympathize us, with us, then they must be trustworthy. So I think educating people and, and people being able to understand, that's a key element here. Great transition to education. You teach um, about this at um, the University of Washington. You've talked about AI anxiety amongst students and uh, scholars, which, which I interpret to mean that you know, if, if you're not into it, you're out. Um, what is AI anxiety and how are you dealing with this in the classroom? Yeah, so this is a real thing um, where students are starting to feel this anxiety that they see this everywhere. Obviously, there's, uh, it's in the media, it's, it's you know, their friends, their colleagues, everybody's talking about. Um, so there are users of um, AI, so regular students. So this is a student in any ma uh, major. Um, they don't want to be left behind. So they want to make sure that um, you know, if their colleagues, their friends are using ChatGPT and other resources, that they should be able to use it. Why shouldn't they use it? They, they don't want to lose the competitive edge. Or at least know how to. Exactly, right? Mm -hmm. And then there are the students who are in this major where they are in computer science, information science, engineering, and these fields where a lot of their work is being affected and suddenly has transitioned into this new era that they were not accounting for. So now what do they do? Uh, do they fight against this? That the things that they were doing before is still as valuable or they give in. Or maybe taken over by AI. That it's taken over by AI, so what should I be doing now? Yeah. So I get this question a lot from students who are working on research projects or researchers 
Like, what do I do now? You know, should everything now be done through these large language models and other AI tools? Um, where do I play a role? Am I, am I just a consumer of this? Am I just a tool builder now? Where is the real research? Well, if folks who are being college educated and beyond at University of Washington who are into this are worried, so, are the, so is the average person who works at a job in a factory. Um, do you think we, could AI create what you might call surplus people? where there's only so many people that really are needed for the jobs who can prove their worth. Everybody else is kind of a surplus person. Is that possible? So I think we've seen this in other trends too, where in the beginning of these kind of technology development, um, these technology usually help, they augment, uh, they're they are helping, but at some point, uh, and so you kind of, there's this kind of a hill, kind of a curve where up to some point, you're actually building capacity, you're adding value, but you get to this tipping point where you realize that you can increase more capacity and more efficiency if you start eliminating some of the, the human elements in this. Mm -hmm. So now you start coming on this other side of the hill where that's where you start losing some of these jobs, some of these tasks, because machines can do them much faster, better. So we are climbing the hill and, and it's looking, it's so great. We are adding all <laughs> kinds of uh, uh, possibilities, right? Uh, but some who are skeptical about this, they're looking at the other side of the hill because yeah. they've seen this happening in industrial era. They've seen it happening in, in all kinds of you know, different era that we've lived through. But it's also sparked new, backside of that hill is maybe new information, new uses, new ideas, new processes. There may be another hill, right? And so, but the question here, so I think one thing is clear that this is adding value and it's gonna keep adding value. It's actually shown to, there are projections about increasing GDP, uh, there are projections about how it's gonna to add to our um, economy uh, and, and other you know, aspects of our life. That being said, one thing we haven't focused on is inequality. So this is not going to benefit everybody equally. Yeah. And so it is very possible that this is going to create more inequity we already have digital divide where not everybody has access to all the technology, broadband, you know, some of those things are real problems. Um, this is likely to intensify some of those divides. Interesting. Sharak, thanks so much for coming to Northwest Now. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. One would like to say that artificial intelligence is like any other tool, be it a car or a hammer or a gun. The operator is the one who decides whether it will be used for good or evil. The bottom line, that analogy breaks down with AI because it can theoretically learn and develop its own tools to meet its own goals. Something that resembles self-awareness is where the real danger lies. And we're probably already not being careful enough as we roll it out. Maybe you should unplug your computer. I hope this program got you thinking and talking. To watch this program again or to share it with others, Northwest Now can be found on the web at kbtc.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Northwest Now. A streamable podcast of this program is available under the Northwest Now tab at kbtc.org and on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That's going to do it for this edition of Northwest Now. Until next time, I'm Tom Lason. Thanks for watching.